0: Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt, May the Lord judge between me, between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. But she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram.
1: Rebecca, thanks very much uh, for reading the passage for us. Well, one of the big goals of our work here at Covent Garden Talks is to help cultivate the mindset that your workplace is your mission field. Because we spend most of our waking hours at work, that is where our mission field must be. Uh, Evangelism at work, it's a must. But I recognize even as I say those words, you you might be feeling a sense of unease, uh, feelings such as guilt or dread, or sometimes irritation can, can start to creep in uh, whenever the e-word the e is used, uh, we are worried, uh, we are afraid, we are fearful of what others think of us. And a way we may deal with this unease is perhaps to lower the stakes and to view evangelism uh, to be reserved for a niche group of Christians. Uh, not to say that it's personally not important, but it's often done by a certain group of Christians Well, the the extroverts, the ones who were born with thicker skin. So is it reserved for a few? Uh, For the record, I I think we're all born with paper-thin skin. But see, the question still remains. uh, How important is evangelism? Is it a niche activity? How big a deal is it? And one way to grapple with this question well, it's not to start by figuring out what we need to do, but rather by asking how central is the nations to God's plans. See, after all, uh, what we need to do and should do should flow from his plans, his purposes, uh, his heart. And once we figure out what he cares about, uh, we don't have to overstate or to understate what we need to do. Uh, We can simply reflect his, art, his heart in our actions. So how central is the nations to God's plan? Well, one, one might argue that the promises do focus on the nation of Israel. Uh, if you were with us last week, we saw chapter 15. God made a covenant to Abram. He swore with his life. But a covenant was specific to the nation of Israel, uh, released from slavery into the promised land. And more of a Huge chunks of the Old Testament is focused on Israel. Uh, Granted, the the New Testament has a wider focus. But the Old Testament, well, it zooms in squarely on God's chosen nation. Um, Has the nation always played a central role in God's plans? Was it an afterthought? And you may not be a Christian with us today. And understandably, evangelism, well, is the last thing on your mind But I'm assuming that you are here because you're interested to find out more about who God is and what makes him tick. And that's our goal in the next 20 minutes or so, uh, to understand who God is. And Genesis is an excellent place to ask these questions because it's the first book in the Bible, and that sets the foundation for all else that follows. It helps us to understand the basic formation of his plans. And in chapters 15 to 17 of the book of Genesis, uh, we come to the key turning point in Abraham's narrative. And as we take a closer look in chapter 16 today, we'll understand how the nations fit in. Now, why don't we go to chapter 16 today and let's see what God has to say to us today. If you are following the handout, we are at point number one. The epic failure of God's chosen one. You see, in our lives, we often come to a point of crossroads and we are faced with two options. Firstly, to to exercise trust in God's promises and to act in the light of that. Or option two, to not exercise trust. Come up with your man-made decision. In our passage today, we see Abr- Abram and Sarai are uh, doing the latter, uh, coming up with a man-made solution to solve God's problem for him. I look down to verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian slave whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Perhaps on one hand, we can sympathize with Sarai. Uh, Her frustration after 10 years of waiting at age 85, uh, she feels her body getting older and older. The wrinkles on her face have become a permanent feature. Uh, Her skin has properly sagged. Menopause, uh, that was ages ago. Getting pregnant? Well, impossible. And obtaining children through someone else was a common practice in ancient times. And so perhaps we can sympathize with her. But in a number of ways, I want us to see that our author, he wants us to see that this is an epic failure on the part of Abram and Sarai. Uh, Firstly, her intentions. Sarai, she she tells us where she thinks the problem lies. Verse 2. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. See, to Sarai, it's very clear. Now, this is God's fault and I need to sort out his mistake. Next, notice the lack of Abram's intentions. Abram, he is passive, he, he takes no step to prevent this from happening. Now, he simply listens to his wife. Is he happy to engage in adulterous behavior? Um, is he afraid of angering Sarai? Well, we are not told. But he's clearly happy to, to take the back seat. And thirdly, notice the outcome. Uh, Sarai, she, she achieves the exact opposite of what she intended. Look to verse 4. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. See, Hagar treats Sarai with contempt. Uh, Sarai blames Abram for her mistake. And after fulfilling his sexual desire, he he washes his hands of the situation and allows Sarai to mistreat her servant. And after being persecuted, or Hagar, she flees. And at the end of the first scene, we started out no better than before. Um, Hagar, she has no home. Sarai has, has no servant. Abram has no son. It's a terrible outcome. And I, I wonder whether um, you, you, we, we noticed what the essence of what's happening here. Um, I wonder whether you heard that there were phrases or words that sounded familiar when the passage was being read out. Uh, do you see the, the language that our author is using here in chapter 16 is picking up from language that he first used in Genesis 3, like the full narrative, uh, to underscore the severity of what's happening here. Uh, let me show some verses on the slides. Uh, firstly, we are told that Abram, well, he listened to the voice of Sarai. Uh, not that listening to your voice is inherently wrong, but in Genesis, uh, that functions as a motif of the fall. See, Adam, he was cursed in Genesis three seventeen because he listened to the voice of his wife. Also notice how Sarai's actions are described. In verse 3, she took Hagar, the Egyptian, and gave to Abram. The exact same wording is used to describe Eve. Uh, she saw that a tree was good for food. She took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. And the point is that the, the fall, well, it's, it's being replayed here. Uh, Sarah, she is sinning like Eve. And Abram is passive and trying to wash his hands like Adam. And the the connections, they're there clearly for us to notice. But why? Why are the connections there? And my suggestion is that the author is, he's emphasizing the point that we've been making, that this is a colossal failure by God's chosen ones. This is the failure of the world's hopes. How bad is this? This is bad, very bad. You see, the, the vaccine, um, that has been the, the light and the end of the tunnel um, as we look forward. Uh, but imagine with me, next week, uh, we find out that the virus has mutated again into a more deadly strain. And this time, Pfizer or the Oxford nor Monera vaccine will be effective against them. But what's worse, That all three vaccines have started to produce daily side effects for those who have already received them. A worsening pandemic, harmful vaccines. It's like a great stone is being rolled over covering the exit of the the tunnel. Uh, We are plunged back into darkness. A whole year of lockdown looms ahead. All our hopes are quashed. And in essence, that's what's happening here in our chapter. Uh, The hope of the world, Abram, the man by whom the world was to be restored by, well, he has utterly failed. See, Abram, he he fails like Adam in the garden. All our hopes are quashed. The world is plunged back into darkness. It's impossible to to overstate how disastrous this is. This is bad for, for Abram. This is bad for humanity. But not only is it bad for, for Abram, it's also really bad for, for God. See, the, the failure of Abraham um, indicates a failure of God's plan to restore the world. After all, Abraham he was chosen by God to be the mediator of the blessing. And instead of blessings, the chosen family is bringing persecutions on the nations. And so we're left wondering, uh, if this exposes a crack in God's plan and promises, is this a reason not to trust God? Well, it's often been said that in the face of adversity uh, we show our true colors, we expose what we are truly like inside. And in the next scene we, we God is being exposed. Uh, we see his true colors. Uh, we see what he's truly like inside. And the next scene is a really unique scene. Uh, for the first time in the Abram narrative, uh, it doesn't involve Abram. We, we get an insight to God's one-to-one dealings with Hagar, an insight to uh, that Abram doesn't see. Uh, we understand something that Abram doesn't yet understand. We see God's heart for the nations. And that's our second point. Uh, God's extraordinary care for the nations. A pregnant, servant, a pregnant servant is abused by her mistress. Uh, the, the hard work that she is tasked with, it grows in tandem with her bulge. Uh, she could with her mistress or she could leave, take an eight day dangerous trek through the wilderness back home to Egypt. Which has a better chance of survival? Uh, the choice is clear. Now Hagar, she, she packs her bag and escapes in the middle of the night. By the third day, she's low on food. She's running out of water, dying of thirst. But thankfully, she finds a spring to fill her water skin. And to a surprise, she hears a voice. I look to verse 8. And the angel said to, to Hagar, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, He shall be a world well donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. A few observations on the Lord's care. Uh, firstly, his personal interaction with, with Hagar, uh, the foreigner. He knows her by name. The next notice is a surprise in verse, verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude see any ancient israelite reading this for the first time uh, might fall off his chair in shock if you remember the promise to abram was that his offspring will be a multitude unable to be numbered here hagar is promised a version of that blessing her offspring will not will also not be able to be numbered hagar a foreigner, an Egyptian, obtains a version of the Abrahamic blessing. And in this way, Hagar, she personifies the nations. Verse 12 makes it explicit that Hagar's offspring will not be the chosen offspring, for he will be against everyone rather than the blessing. But nevertheless, Hagar, she will have a form, a version of Abraham's blessing. And also notice uh, the meaning of Ishmael's name. Now you might have a subscript in your Bible explaining what his name means. Ishmael literally means God's, God hears. I imagine when, when Hagar comes back to, um, to Abram uh, and Sarai, and when Ishmael is born, every time Hagar calls out for her son, uh, you can hear her voice ringing out, God hears, God hears. And the whole of Abram's household, particularly Sarai, is reminded that God has heard Hagar's plight. And lastly, notice Hagar's acknowledgement in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord, Abram's God, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Well, in one sense, uh, God, he's, he's not obliged to, to care for Hagar, even if he wants to remain committed to his promise. He could simply focus on dealing with Abram, and he would still be carrying out his promise. But here, not only does God hear, he also sees and he cares. It is as if God's hands are a cup around his ears to hear the plight of the nations. Uh, His eyes are fixed, observing the afflictions they suffer. Uh, God's heart, it aches for the nations. How central is the nations to God's plans? Well they are right at the heart of it. And the the whole structure of the Abraham narrative, well it goes on to make this point. Uh, I put what I think is the structure of The Abram narrative from chapters 12 to 22, and I've put it on the screen as well. Hopefully you might find this helpful uh, the next time you pick up uh, Genesis again in the future. But the the key thing to notice about the structure is that chapter 16 is the key turning point in the Abram narrative. Uh, It is where the story hinges and turns on. It's the central episode in the story. But the question is why? Now, why is it in the middle? Well, my suggestion is on the dark backdrop of Abraham's failure as the mediator of the blessing. God's care and love and commitment to Hagar and the nations shines like a diamond. And we'll see God's commitment to the nation drive the narrative on from chapter 17 onwards. Uh, The Abraham narrative will take an international focus in the second half. Do you see the point? Uh, the nations, they are central to God's plan. To, to clarify my point, I'm not saying that Abraham or Israel, they're no longer God's chosen people, they, they are. And we're going to see in the next chapter how God wades into the mess with Abraham and transforms him. But the, the means uh, is not the goal. Uh, the arrow is not the bullseye. Abram was not chosen for Abraham. Abram was chosen for the nations. And so the nations, they were always central to God's plans. And Jesus, if, if you recall in the New Testament, when he comes on the scene, he makes the same point. Uh, when he fulfills Abram's role, when he lived not like Adam nor Abram, but he lived in perfect obedience to God. Uh, what does the Lord Jesus say at the end of Matthew's gospel? Matthew 28 verse 6, 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now, he becomes the perfect mediator of the Abrahamic blessing to the nations. How central is the nations to, to God's plans? Well, they have always been at the heart of it. Personally, I find it very striking that you wouldn't make this story up. And I guess if you've been reading, you might find it a bit strange. And this is not how you write your own nation's history. Now, you write about the, the utter failure of your great forefather or the love your God has for other nations. But you see, it doesn't read as if this was made up. And, and so I'm, I'm persuaded here that we have a true representation of who God is, um, his, his heart. His, his care for all nations. And when man fails, God shows his heart. And his heart is, is beautiful. It's beautiful because we, we are the nations. We are not his chosen people. Like Hagar, we can say with confidence that God has heard us, seen us, and cared for us. We are the beneficiaries of his heart for the nations. Well, if you don't know who God is, uh, here is an insight into his heart. Uh, He is the God who who cares for all. But the question for for those of us who do know God, uh, the question is, do we share God's heart? Uh, Someone who did was Hudson Taylor, one of the first few missionaries to China. Uh, He started China Inland Missions, now known as Overseas Mission Fellowship. Born in 1832, he grew up in South Yorkshire. In June 1865, he penned his thoughts after being invited to a church in Brighton about an experience that left him utterly broken. And here's what he writes. Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christians rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered on this out on the sands alone in great spiritual pain. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief. And I surrendered myself to God for this service. Uh, that was a day that moved him to start China inland missions. And he wrote a book, uh, China, its spiritual needs and claims. A book with the intention to stir the hearts of his fellow Englishmen to go uh, to sin to give, urging comfortable Englishmen to have a greater sense of loss of the lost in China. And this is what he writes in his book. Dear reader, is it not your duty to carry the gospel to these perishing ones? And then he recounts a heartbreaking episode. In the same boat was a Chinaman as a passenger who had been to England and he went by the name of Peter. He had heard the gospel when he was there, but had not experienced its saving power. I spoke to him about his soul's salvation, and he was moved to tears. And I was pleased, therefore, when he asked to be allowed to accompany me to hear me preach. Our boat drew nearer to the walls of the city, and I went into the cabin to prepare for going ashore, expecting in a few minutes to enter Fu with my Chinese friend. Hosani startled with a splash and a cry. I sprang out of the cabin and looked around. Everyone was at his post but poor Peter. I instantly let down the sail and leapt overboard, trying to find him. Unsuccessful, I looked around in agonizing suspense and I saw close to me a fishing boat with a dragnet furnished with hooks, which I knew would bring him up. Come, I cried as hope sprang up in my heart. Come and drag over this spot for a man is drowning here. Wei Bin, it's not convenient, was the cold and unfeeling reply. Don't talk about convenience, I cried in agony. A man is drowning. We are busy fishing and cannot come, was the reply. Never mind your fishing, I cried. I will give you more money than a day's fishing if you come at once. How much money will you give us? Come or you will be too late. I will give you five dollars. We won't come for that we were dragged for $20. I have not got so much. Come quickly. I will give you all the money I have. How much is that? I don't know exactly. About $14. At last they came. In less than one minute, they brought up the body of poor Peter. And they were most indignant and clamorous because the payment of the exorbitant demand was delayed while attempts were being made at resuscitation. But all was in vain. Life was extinct. And so Hudson Taylor continues. Dear reader, would you not say that these men were truly guilty of poor Peter's death? And that they had the means of saving him, but would not use them? Surely they were. But yet pause before you give your judgment against them, lest you prove to be no different than them. Is it so hard-hearted, so wicked a thing to neglect to save the body? The Lord Jesus commands, commands you, dear brother, and you, dear sister, go, says he, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Will you say to him, Wei bin, it's not convenient. Will you tell him you are busy fishing and cannot go? Oh, remember, pray for, long for the unevangelized. Chinese. Uh, Open Doors, a missionary organization, estimates now that there are 97 million Christians in China. Uh, That's more than the people living in the UK. See, Hudson Taylor, he was someone who shared God's heart, uh, someone who knew that the nations were central to his plan. And so do we share God's heart? Uh, Do we care for the nations? Do we burn f- uh, with the same desire to see them saved? See, reaching out to the nations uh, may not necessarily mean quitting your job, selling your houses, and going overseas, uh, although I hope it might be for some of us. See, in London, we have the nations at our doorstep. Uh, we meet them every day, offline and online. Uh, those around you, are uh, those from the nation, God has graciously ordained for you to share the gospel with. And so our aim at Common Garden Talks is to cultivate the mindset that your workplace is your mission field. It isn't a niche. It isn't reserved for some, but it's for anyone who shares God's heart. And as we peer into the heart of God, what do we see? Uh, we see that the nations is what he cares about. So will we share his heart? will we bring the good news to the nations? Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you that you love the nations. We are sorry when we don't share the heart of yours. And we pray, Father, that we might grow in love for those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.